Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. Well, hey, good morning, Liverpool One Church. Why don't you go ahead and take your seats? It is so great to have you with us for service today, especially because uh, we're gonna be kicking off a brand new series called What Is The Point? So I think that there's two reasons really for why today is a great day. Firstly, it is Sunday and you're in church and we're glad that you're here. And I always find like the start of a new series is always super fun. Now, the subject matter of what we're gonna be talking about today might at first hearing sounds somewhat depressing, but I promise you, I really firmly believe that this is going to be helpful, not only for you, but maybe even for some of your friends and your family who also struggle with this one particular issue that we're going to be discussing. And I'm going to let you know what that is in just a moment. But let me give you a little bit of the context for how we've come to decide to speak about what we're going to this week and next week. And that's because in 2019, one of the things that really affected did my life was hearing the news that there was quite a well-known uh, pastor, a leader of a church out in America who took his own life. I mean, he was a married guy, beautiful wife, beautiful children, like ministry-wise, he really had it going on, was doing a great job. And literally nobody around him knew or had any clue, any idea at all about some of the inner struggles that he had and was going through. Nobody knew what he was experiencing and he ended up taking his own life, which is just heartbreaking, right? And then just in 2020, there was another really well-known pastor involved in leading a large church that was on staff at a friend of mine and he took his own life. He committed suicide. And I just thought like, this is just so sad. It's heartbreaking, right? But when you hear stories like that, sometimes it can feel a little bit disconnected. You know, like especially if you don't know the person directly, it feels a little bit like, well, it's not your life, so your life's not affected. Well, just this week, I was on the phone to a pastor friend of mine leading a great church and um, not a million miles away. And he just made this comment to me that really bothered me and affected me. And he just made this statement about how he said that whilst he didn't understand um, before why pastors would ever take their own life, he said for the first time in his ministry, he said, I just understand it. Like I can associate, I can connect with the idea of just not wanting to be around anymore, the weight, the pressure, the criticism, the, the, all the stuff. He's like, I just get it. And it just bothered me. And at the time I'd been reading, um, literally since it was released, a book that came out by a guy called Chris Hodges, and the book is called Out of the Cave. And the book is actually focused entirely on a subject that we don't talk about enough in church, I don't think anyway. And it's about the issue of depression. And I think that it's a really important time for us to be talking about this subject and this issue. And that's why I actually want to highly recommend that book, Out of the Cave, to you. Because much of the content has come directly from that book. And the timing of it is great, especially when you consider that since the start of the pandemic, that mental health has gone up in excess of 900% that there are now one in four young people aged under 30 who in the past year since the start of the pandemic have thought about and given consideration to taking their own life. 
What we also find is that divorce is up 20% and the antidepressant medication is up 300% just over the duration of the last 12 months. So what we're gonna do is this, we're gonna split this week's message in half and we're gonna kind of do part one today, part two next week. And we're gonna be talking about this idea about what do you do when you hit breaking point? Like, what do you do when you come to the end of yourself, that sense of like, I can't cope, I can't handle it, I can't take it anymore. What do you do? Like, and how do you even get there? And let alone that, how do you get out of it? So this week, we're gonna be talking and asking that question, like, how do you end up at breaking point? And then next week, we're gonna be jumping straight back into the scriptures and picking it up straight off. And we're gonna be talking about what do you do to get yourself out of that breaking point? One of the maybe two takeaways that I personally got from the book is this. Firstly, a lot of people would say that depression is like a malfunction of your mind. But actually what the book kind of points towards is it's not so much as a malfunction of your mind, but rather it's a signal from your mind to the rest of you, letting you know that you're headed for a crash. Like this is not gonna end well unless changes are made. Like you're not gonna be able to handle this unless change happens. And then the second sort of takeaway from the book is just surrounding the whole idea of the stigma that's often attached to depression is really quite unfair. And I say that because if you think about you maybe who suffer with your eyesight, you'll think nothing of going to the opticians and wearing a pair of glasses or getting new contact lenses because of a, a slightly malfunctioning issue in your health you've got with your eyesight. And we don't question that. We don't ask awkward questions around that. It's just a perfectly normal and acceptable thing. Yet why is it that as far as depression is concerned, when you tell your friend or when you hear that someone's struggling with depression, it's now a really big deal and for you it's like it's a faith problem or maybe it's a sin issue or maybe it's a secret that you've got going on in your closet and you've not told anyone and if you just let everybody know what's really going on then you'd come out of your depression and we treat it in a way that we don't treat any other types of illnesses that go on in our bodies. Now, just to kind of like caveat this, let me just say from the off, I'm not medically trained, I'm not a doctor, I'm a pastor. So I'm gonna cover everything from a biblical perspective and biblical foundation. And neither can I really say that I have ever struggled with depression. I think that on a, home, on a whole, you find me pretty happy, pretty balanced most of the time. I'm normally on a relatively even keel. Happy-go-lucky tends to be more of my nature, more of my wiring. So I don't know what it's like to suffer with depression like maybe some of you do or some of your friends and your families do. But I do know what it's like to almost experience circumstantial depression. You know, a few years back when my wife was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, it just became such a big deal in our world, in our family, in our church, it like affected every area of our life. And actually, over the course of a year, as she got better, as she got stronger, as she got healthier, I just started to spiral really downhill. And in fact, it reached a point where I had some pastor friends of ours, our pastors, just say to me, hey, listen, you should really go and spend some time with a counsellor. Now, of course, I'm English. So what did I say? They're American and they're kind of like, counsellors are great, life coaches are great, we're English. And we're like, nope, I don't need no counsellor. I'm not gonna do no couch therapy. That's not me, that's not the English thing. And there's all this stigma attached with it. Actually, it was the best thing that I've ever done. I went and I spent a period of months with this counsellor and she's 
said to me, look, you're not actually suffering with depression. What you have going on is something called PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, and you're probably thinking the same thing that I did when I heard that. Like, is that not just soldiers that come back from, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq? Is that not just our war heroes that suffer with that? And she was like, no, no, absolutely not. She was like, you've got this and your mind is broken right now because you've got all of these events that are happening around you that you can't help, you can't change, you can't control, you can't do anything about that. And that goes so against your inner circuitry and wiring, your body and your mind does not know how to handle it. And it was just taking me to a really bad and dark place. Now, I'm absolutely fine now, but all I can say is that, I, I think I'm fine. Maybe if you speak to my wife, she'd say, no, he's crazy. But the bottom line is, is that I have never really suffered from depression, but I know in part, maybe only a small part of what some of you deal with daily. And I just want to say that I think that God wants you free. From my pastoral perspective, I want you to know He takes no delight in seeing you suffer. He takes no delight in seeing the trauma that you've got going on in your thought life. And you know, one of the things that I love about the Scriptures, this collection of manuscripts that we now contain and call within our Bible, is the stories that you find that you can see characters that are actually just like yourself. What's amazing about the Bible is that the people that you see God often using uh, within it are really flawed and broken people. I mean, you can find thieves, murderers, adulterers, and even people who suffered vastly with depression. Their story is in the Bible too. Like God even used people that struggled with depression. In the Old Testament, we could start off, and it's a great place, we could talk about a guy whose name was Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, he was so uh, depressed, he even wrote an entire book called Lamentations, which was basically just a story of how sad am I, woe is me. Like there's an entire book in the Bible that's dedicated to Jeremiah's depression. It got so bad for him that he actually used phrases like, I am deprived of peace. He said, life isn't working anymore. Like maybe you can relate to that. He even said at one point, nothing in my life is working and all hope from the Lord has gone. Like he felt as though God had abandoned him. God was silent towards him. He was just absent from all of his prayers. He felt like all hope from the Lord had gone. And I think that at times we too can relate to certain elements of that. In the New Testament, there was a guy whose name is Paul, and he's probably one of my faith heroes. And what I love about Paul is actually, he got really depressed too, and yet God still used him in amazing ways. In fact, our church is here today in Liverpool, probably as a result of the work of Paul. He was the church planter, the pioneer, the early church leader, and yet he suffered immensely with depression to the point at which he actually wrote and said, I don't want you to be uninformed on this but I am dealing with pressures and issues that just go beyond my ability to endure. I even wanted to die. And then we can kind of arrive at a prophet back in the Old Testament whose name was Elijah. Now, I think personally, Elijah was like probably the greatest of all the prophets. And I say that because when you see in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Jesus who'd gone up the side of a mountain with his disciples and he meets Moses and Elijah on the side of a mountain, like in a heavenly body. I mean, how cool is that? So Elijah is someone who heaven has a lot of respect for, like heaven was shouting and championing the name of Elijah. And yet it's clear that he struggled with 
depression. What's interesting about Elijah when we look at his life, and that's what we're gonna be doing this week and next, is that you see that Elijah's depression came directly after some of his biggest successes. Like the pinnacle moments in his life, which were so amazing that would have made headline news, which was like, woo, this is Elijah, life is great and amazing. Like the very next chapter in the Bible, he wants to kill himself. And you've got to kind of look at that and go, how do you do that? How do you get from chapter 18, where everything's amazing, God's using you, this incredible stuff is happening, and then chapter 19, God, you should just kill me. Because what had happened was in chapter 18, there are these two stories that are the pinnacle moments of Elijah's career. Firstly, we hear about how he takes on these false prophets of Baal and Asher. There were 850 false prophets, these like pagan prophets, and Elijah, as this one man of God, takes them all on and destroys them all. And then what's even cooler is immediately afterwards, he like builds this altar and he fills it with water and wood and God comes down and consumes the whole thing. You should read it out for yourselves. It's just an amazing story. It's like, this is incredible how God is using Elijah. And then we go on and we hear about how there's such a drought in the land and nation of Israel, like it hadn't rained for three years. So Elijah was persistent in going before God and praying, saying, God, would you send the rain? God, would you send the rain? God, would you send the rain? And then the drought breaks and Elijah sees rain fall from heaven. And it's like this amazing moment. And you would think that this was party time for Elijah. You would think that like, this is the pinnacle of his life. This is a great time and season. But what you actually find is the very next chapter, we're introduced to two characters called King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they don't really like what Elijah's doing. And Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah has been up to. And now we find ourselves in 1 King 19 and we look and see and find out how Elijah, after his pinnacle moment, now reaches his breaking point. In fact, some people would say, Depression is like being in a cave because it's like it's dark, it's cold and you know there's a way out. You just can't see it. You just can't find it. I think that that's where we're, we find Elijah. And that's why this week we're gonna look at what was it that Elijah did to reach his breaking point? What was it that Elijah did that got himself into a cave? And then next week we're gonna look at, well, what did Elijah do to get himself out of this cave? So let's jump to some scripture. We're in church, it's good that we do this. So let's go 1 Kings 19 verse one. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, she sent a message. Now just notice, what Elijah received from Jezebel wasn't good, but it was a threat on his life. And we're gonna go there in a minute. But notice that it was sent by a messenger. It was a message. It wasn't even somebody sent to kill Elijah. It was a threat or a message about potentially at some point in the future, this may or may not happen. In other words, this was what Elijah received in his inbox that morning. That was the text message that he received and he couldn't handle it. It was like he got one negative comment and he literally reaches breaking point. And here is the comment that he received. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, meaning the prophets of Baal that he just destroyed. That was the comment that landed on his feet. 
That was the text that he was the recipient of. And it freaked him out. He's like, what? Jezebel wants to kill me? She's gonna pursue me? Now again, it wasn't somebody was sent to kill him. It was just the threat of at some point in the future, this may or may not happen, but someone who doesn't like you is gonna get you. Freaked him out. Verse three, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, which, bit of a side note, we've not really got time to go into it, but it's interesting to me that this is happening at a place called Beersheba. And it's interesting because this was the place that Elijah made a covenant with God that he was gonna like follow God, pursue God, he was gonna be God's man. And now it's almost like at the time in his life where he reaches a point of going, I can't handle this anymore, I'm afraid, I'm scared, I don't like that. He goes back to that very same place where he previously promised to follow God. He then goes and it tells us that he left his servant there, bad mistake. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Bad mistake. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Anybody ever felt like that when the kids are going crazy? It's like, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. What a strange and peculiar thing for him to say. I'm no better than my ancestors. Why does he even bring that up? And then the story goes on and he just ends up going deeper into this cave. And he's just like, God, you might as well kill me. He ends up going deeper into his breaking point. God, you might as well just do me in. Now, here's the thing that I want us to look at. I understand, right, that depression can often arrive in your life and in mine as a result of like a chemical imbalance that happens in the brain. But what research is now showing is that way more common of a causation factor is not an imbalance in the brain, but rather an imbalance in your lifestyle as being the main reason why depression can set in. That can be the reason why you end up in the cave. That can be the reason why you end up at breaking point. So this week, I wanna look at very practically what did Elijah do to himself to end up in the cave? What did Elijah do to himself to end up at his breaking point? And I don't wanna be dismissive about the fact that chemical imbalances you know, are real because it's absolutely true and sometimes you will need a pill, sometimes you will need some medication to help balance things out. And I'm not argumentative about that at all. I'm a full-fledged believer and supporter of that. I just wanna talk about the other side of the argument too, which says it's not always that. So here are six ways Six things that Elijah did that we can do also that take ourselves to our own place of feeling like I'm at my breaking point. I can't cope, I can't go on, I don't like this, I'm not happy, God, you might as well kill me. There are six things that Elijah did that I want us to look at. So here's the first thing he did. His life was out of balance. Life in balances was a problem. Johann Hari wrote a book and it was called Life Connections and he makes this statement. We need to stop talking as much about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances in the way that we live. Again, more and more research is now clearly, definitively pointing towards that our lifestyles are often the main causation factors. It's the reason why many people end up feeling so downcast, so low, so like, I don't even wanna get up today, so depressed. Research is showing that actually it's what we can often do to ourselves that brings this on. 
Now, for me personally, my kind of like worst part, worst time of the week is always on a Monday. Like, I love Sundays. Like, my whole household, we live for a Sunday. We love it. Everything in the week is always ramping up to a Sunday. We love church. We love getting together. We love the, the worship. And we love the fact that we get to do this for me and our family. Like, we're here three times. And today I'm preaching three times. And man, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And in many respects, it feels like at the end of a Sunday, like, I am done. Like my cup is empty. I've given my everything. You know, I've done it once, I've done it twice, I've done it three times. And it's like so exhilarating and the adrenaline is going. And in fact, just yesterday I was out for a walk with a bunch of my boys and we had some great fun. And I was speaking with Josh, who is leading worship today. And, and he just kind of made this statement to me. He said, you know, on a Sunday night, he goes, I struggle to get to sleep because I'm so wired from the day. Well, I can relate to that too. I'm like, on a Sunday, I'm like on the highest of highs and buzzing and like, wasn't it great? And then Monday morning comes. And then for me and probably for my wife as well, Monday morning happens and then it's kind of like, oh man, I should have said it differently. Or why did you say that thing? That was a stupid analogy. Or Monday morning happens and I'm like, man, there's, there's better scripture I could have used to drive home that point. Or you, you, you ruined that, the way that you were supposed to say it wasn't the way that it came out. And then you start to drift and your mind starts to go and you're thinking, man, like, and where is so-and-so? Like, I've not seen them for like four weeks now. Like, are they okay? What's going on with them? And then, you know, especially in this COVID pandemic season, my mind has always gone as well to the point where I'm going like, and how come they're not serving in church anymore? Because they used to be here like two services. They'd be at one and attend one and then they'd serve at another. And now they're either never in church or now it's like their priorities have shifted and they're not involved anywhere on a Sunday anymore. And I'm like, how is that even happening? And internally, I kind of go, man, we suck at this. Like the message isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. We're not leading teams good enough. And then normally, what happens is about nine o'clock, we go Starbucks and we grab a coffee. We both decide that we're going to quit. And then normally by the end of our walk on the beach, having consumed the caffeine, we tend to agree to give it one more week and see how it goes. That has been our story every single week for years, you know? So it's like I know of the highs and I also know exactly what it's like to experience the lows, feeling like I'm in a dark place. You know, we went skiing once and it was out to Colorado. And what's interesting there is that there are roughly 30 people a year die on the ski slopes. 90% of those that die or get severely injured, their accidents always occur within the last hour of the day. And I think that that tends to happen because of two things. One, it's when you're most tired and you're most overconfident too. It's kind of like you think that you're untouchable because you've been on the slope for five or six hours and now the last hour people end up hitting trees. You kind of look at your life and you look at that which is doable and think that it's sustainable. There's a book and it's by a guy called Stephen Larty and it's called The Depression Cure and he says this. He says, we are never designed for sedentary, which means like sat in front of a computer for 12 hours a day, totally reliant upon technology, media. He says, we're not designed for that. Indoor, sleep deprived, socially isolated, fast food laden, frenetic pace of modern life. And I think we've all got a little bit of that going on in us. I think that when you actually look at Elijah, he too had a little bit of that going on within him. Like he's just been to battle and he's just defeated the prophets of Baal and Asher. He's just been praying to God for the rain and they've not had it for three years. And then they see it and then they get it. And then literally in the next verse, he's in a cave and he feels like I'm at my breaking point. When you're tired and when you become overconfident, is really the time in the season when you can start to enter into a place 
called depression. So is there an answer for that? What's the fix? What's the remedy? Well, in Ecclesiastes verse four, verse six, chapter four, verse six, it states this. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Like, yeah, it's true sometimes to have a season where you're going crazy in life and you're working every hour and you're getting the extra job to pay up the thing and save up the thing. It's true that that can be good. It's doable, but it's just not always sustainable. Like, you know, we have this way of life, don't we, of thinking that like one pound is good, but two pounds would be better. Like we want both of our hands full all the time. But that's completely contrary to what the writer of Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to do. He was kind of saying, you know, guys, seriously, like sometimes better to just have one handful than two. Better to have one hand that's full and live with peace and tranquility and have a little less and go without way better a way to do life like that. But it's so countercultural for us, isn't it? What do we do? We say, well, one pound is good, but two pounds are better. One donut is good, but two donuts would be better. One job is good, but two jobs would be better. One wife is good, but two wives would be wrong. I don't want anybody thinking that that would be remotely good, okay? It'll get you into trouble, right? But this is how we think. And I think that maybe Elijah had both of his hands full and experienced zero peace, zero tranquility. So your answer is, well, God, you might as well just kill me. Sometimes it's just not good to live that full, you know? Create some margin. Create some space, some time to just do whatever it is that energizes and enthuses you. Now, the second thing that Elijah was guilty of, as well as not only just living his life in an imbalanced way, was comparison. Remember that statement? I'm no better than my ancestors. Why is that even in there? I promise you, every single line from Scripture is in there for a reason. And when Elijah was saying that, he was making this comparative statement of like comparing his life where he is now with the way in which his ancestors, his uncle, his great uncle, his great granddad, his great great grandfather had all lived and ended their life. It's like he was comparing where he is now with where they finished. Comparison doesn't help you, it doesn't help me. And it led Elijah into a state of depression and it can lead you there too. It led Elijah into this cave and it can lead you there too. Because comparison is the thief of joy. When you're wondering what do they have? Why do they have it? Why don't you have it? Why, why did they get the girl? Why did they get the car? It's the thief of joy. And in fact, actually, this is why social media is just so unhelpful. And this is certainly not a social media rant, but it's unhelpful because it encourages us to live life with one eye over the shoulder. Like we're always looking back, aren't we now? What's everybody else doing? I promise you, you don't need to know what your neighbour is having for tea. Your life will work just fine. It will work just okay. Even if you're not aware about what everyone's eating tonight. Let me give you some scripture for it. Galatians 6 verse 4 says this. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride, and it's a good type of pride, in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to anyone else. You see, Elijah was never gonna stand before God and ever give an account to God about what his ancestors did and what his ancestors achieved. He's only ever gonna stand before God and give an account for what he did with his life. And it's the same with you and it's the same with me. You're only give, gonna give an account for what you do and what you don't do. Not your social media friends, not your Facebook friend, not your Instagram followers. Like you're only gonna be accountable for what you do. And when you live your life comparing about what everybody else has and what you don't have, it leads you into the cave. 
it not only throws you out of sync, out of whack, but it literally, it makes you feel like, God, I don't like this because I'm not as good as them. I'm not as strong as them. I'm not as complete as them. And it throws us all out of whack. And you know what the crazy thing is? It's all of the early founders of our technological world that we live in now. They got onto this real early. Bill Gates, he literally, he banned his children from using technological devices. And when they were allowed them, they were only allowed them for a really short window of the day. Steve Jobs, he wouldn't even let his kids have an iPhone. I mean, I bet he could have gotten free as well. Like 14 years of age, he said, you can first have a phone, but you only get it for a short window of time. Mark Zuckerberg, who started Facebook, he wrote an open letter to his one-year-old baby daughter, and he stated this. He said, I hope that you grow up to open your eyes and smell the flowers. No mention of the internet or online activity. No mention of Facebook. And these early founders of the technological world that we live in today are now finding the same thing that content creators who are like acing it and killing it with some of the biggest firms on the planet, they're banning their children from using social media. The platforms that have given them this incredible life, they're saying, this is addictive, this isn't healthy, this is not good for your soul to be looking around all the time at what everybody else is doing. And honestly, for me personally, in preparation for this talk, I've been now three and a half, nearly four weeks completely off social media. And, and if I'm gonna be honest, like, I feel like, man, peace. My mind is clear. I'm like, I feel good. I feel balanced. I feel in sync because your mind, it wasn't designed to have all of this information about what they're eating and what they're buying. It's like, what does your mind even do with that anyway? You weren't designed like that. The third thing that Elijah struggled with, and we do this too, is that he ended up ruminating in self-talk. In the scriptures that you can read as you go on throughout chapter 19, it talks about how Elijah ends up in a place where he's moaning and groaning to God. He's really complaining. And he's saying like, God, you might as well kill me because I am the only good man standing, which wasn't true. He was like, I am the only man that's good and honest and righteous that's left. And it wasn't true. And what you end up doing when you ruminate in your self-talk is you start to recount everything that's going on in your life. And the more you think about it, about your distress, about your trauma, it doesn't get any better. The more you process it, the worse it in fact gets. When you ruminate in self-talk, it's the same sort of idea as how cows eat. They, they grab a chunk of grass from the ground and they chew it in their mouths. And then they swallow it and digest it into their stomach before then they regurgitate it back up into their mouths. It's pretty gross, right? And then they chew it some more and then they swallow it and digest it into their stomach before they're sick back up again into their mouths. And then they chew it some more before swallowing it again. It's ruminating, that's what it is. And when you ruminate in your self-talk, every single time you bring it back up, it doesn't taste any better. Like it doesn't get any better. And this is what Elijah was doing. He was like, woe is me. I can't believe that this is happening. This is terrible. This is horrible. I'm the only good man left. And it was a lie. And you end up believing your own lie. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 tells us, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Sometimes you've just got to make a decision. I'm not thinking about that anymore. Like I can't change it. It won't alter. The line in the sand is drawn. I'm not thinking about it anymore. The fourth thing, that Elijah did that took him to this place of breaking point was that he had an inability to process pain in a healthy way. 
You know, one of the things that I've noticed just being in church for a long time is that I feel that there's a lot of people who are Christians and we've not yet got the right mentality about how pain works in our lives. What we think is that because we're now a follower of Jesus, that that should then equal a problem-free, pain-free life. And sometimes we even take it one step further and we say, well, if you're not experiencing that, then you could be doing something wrong, like there's something crazy in your life. Well, actually, that's not really consistent with the teachings of Jesus, because even Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble but behold, I have overcome the world. And sometimes you've just got to understand that that's kind of how it is. You are going to experience hardships. You are. If there's one thing that you can be positive about, you can be positive that at some point you're going to have a hard time, a bad day, something's going to happen. You can be positive about that. So the real question is now knowing that, what are you going to do about that? Because sure, you can do drugs, you can do alcohol, you can binge watch TV, you can head and hammer the ice cream, you can even game till 3am in the morning, but how's that working out for you? Like, is that actually even helping? You know, the drug increase has gone up like crazy since the start of our pandemic. In April of last year, drug use went up by 18% and then illicit drug use went up by 42% in May. It's kind of like you've got to figure out a way to handle what you're going through. Your inability to process the pain that you're experiencing just keeps you living in a depressive state. There's a psychiatrist, he's Jewish, and he's called Viktor Frankl, and he had a clinic out in Austria, and he was intent on trying to help Holocaust survivors. And the only way that he successfully found to help a Holocaust survivor almost like believe that there's a better day, believe that something good could come out of the issues that they've been in was quite different to what another psychiatrist called Freud believed. Because Freud believed that in order for someone to move past their past, that they had to find their meaning in life. And meaning in life was rooted in pleasure. But Frangel didn't believe that at all. He believed that the meaning in life was actually rooted in purpose. And without having purpose, you will end up just indulging in all of life's pleasures. Pleasures that will end up feeling like a bottomless pit, like you try this high, that high, but it never really hits the spot. So I think that what he came up with, this idea of trying to understand how to process the pain of the Holocaust survivors, he said the main thing, the number one thing, was they had to have meaningful work. Like there had to be a part in their week where they felt like what I'm doing counts for something. There had to be a window in their world where they felt like I'm making a difference. I'm impacting somebody else positively for positive change, which is why I say I understand there's been a pandemic. I understand everything's changed for us, but there are so many people who are not even serving in a local church anymore. And I'm like, this is the best place that you can get involved to outwork your fellowship of Jesus. Like if you wanna be able to move past what's ever holding you back from, like, like choose to volunteer in a local church. It's, I'm so impressed every single week when I see all of these people wearing red t-shirts, just being willing to almost be, uh, be, be willing to lay aside what they're going through, having been comforted by God and lay themselves bare on a table and just welcome people in, even in spite of their own struggles and their own difficulties and their own thing that they're going through. But meaningful work is gonna be needed to help you process your pain. Why would you not wanna get involved in a local church? Fifth, and almost finally, what Elijah did, which was not helpful, was he became isolated. We are the loneliest society in history. We have more connections and fewer friends. 
than any other generation that's gone before us. You know, it's like the first problem in the Bible wasn't even sin, it was solitude. That's why in Genesis, it talks about how when God looked and reviewed all that had been made and created, He said that it was not good for man to be alone. And this was the mistake that Elijah was making. Remember, he left his servant in the town and he took himself off on his lonesome out into the wilderness. It was him embracing this mentality and mindset of saying, I'll sort it, I'll fix it on my own, I'm gonna do my own thing. Like honestly, I promise you, if you're feeling down, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling like you're heading towards a breaking point, if you're feeling like you're getting in your own cave, the last thing you wanna do is isolate yourself. It is destructive for you. And then the sixth and final thing is when you are spiritually asleep. Imagine for a moment that I had some inside information. Imagine that I was able to tell you that tonight when you're asleep, there is a man that has the keys to your house. And during the stillness of the night, he's gonna be coming into your house whilst you're flat out asleep. And he's gonna start to go through all of your stuff that you've worked for that is valued by you so, so much. And he's gonna start breaking stuff. He's gonna start messing stuff up. So it would almost be unrecognisable to how you'd planned it and how you dreamed it to be. And then not only that, he's gonna take your children, he's gonna take your loved ones and do some terrible and horrible things. Now, if I were to tell you that, I absolutely promise you that not one of you is going to sleep tonight. But in fact, what you are gonna do is go full on Kevin Costner in the Bodyguard movie style. You are gonna stay up all night watching the line to see if it moves, right? And if you were to have an intruder throughout the duration of the night, I suspect that you might wanna introduce him to your friend called Mr. Baseball Bat. That's how I think that this might go. But you know what's crazy? In Bible terms, some of you live life completely asleep. Like yet yeah, you come to church and you're involved and you clap your hands in the worship and it all feels great and you want the good things that God's got for you, but you don't wanna be observant of the fact that there is a heaven. Yeah, we want that, but we don't want the hell bit. Like there is good, but we don't want evil. Yeah, we've got a loving God that we serve, but we don't wanna hear anything about Satan, right? But the bottom line is this, if you're spiritually asleep, like you don't even realise that we have an enemy, we have an adversary who is out to do you harm. You've got to switch on, you've got to wake up church. You've got to know that this is real, that this happens in your life and in mine. In fact, Scripture tells us, doesn't it, that Satan, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Make sure you're not next on the list, church. You've got to wake up. You know, if you've ever seen those wildlife documentaries that have the lion that goes and attacks the gazelle and like shreds it to pieces, if you'd have said to the gazelle just moments before it was attacked and eaten, hey, are there any lions around here? <laughs> They'd have said, absolutely not. There's no lions here because they can't see it. They're not aware of it. They're completely asleep to the fact that there's a predator roaming just in the grass adjacent to them. That's how we live life too. We want the good things of God, but we don't really wanna know that we have an adversary that's working against us. You know, even Scripture talks about how you can put on the armour of God. So many people that follow Jesus 
know about the armour of God, but never put it on. And what happens? Well, they end up in the cave. They end up at breaking point because they don't realise that there's a target on your back and it's in Satan's interest to take you out because what we want is this Christian way of life that's just all about the good stuff. Give me the good things, God. And if it's not good, I don't wanna know. Hey, we've got to wake up, church. Don't be found and caught asleep because he is a liar and he is like a lion. And if he can get close to you, he will. And if he does, he will devour you. So let's wake up. Let's just realise that in many respects, there is a battle that goes on around us. Call it spiritual warfare, call it whatever you like. But the reality of it is there are things that happen in our world that are not always as a result of God's hand moving in your life. Like wake up, don't be found or caught asleep. And that's why if we try and avoid doing these six things, we'll avoid landing at breaking point. We'll avoid the cave of depression. And now next week, I'm gonna continue the story and talk to you about what you should do if you are in a cave or if you are at breaking point. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.